And then just the ability to really connect with people, right? Rapport and relationship. When I go on an interview with a candidate and I see that they're not even able to chit chat with me and establish that personal connection, like, you know, for the first like 10 minutes of this, you and I were talking. Welcome back to the Speaking and Communicating Podcast. I am your host, Robert Andlela. If you are looking to improve your communication skills, both professionally and personally, this is the podcast you should be tuning into. Communication and soft skills are crucial for your career growth and leadership development. And by the end of this episode, please log on to Apple and Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review and what you'd like for us to discuss on this show. Now let's get communicating. Now let's get communicating with Sardo Ahmedov all the way from Florida. He is the Chief Revenue Officer. I think that's the first time we have one like that on the show for Jefton. And he's a managing partner as well for the app development company. And before I go any further, please help me welcome him to the show. Hi, Sardor. Hey, thanks for having me, Roberta. How are you doing today? Doing really well. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Welcome to the show. How hot is Florida? It's very hot, uh, but, you know, it's actually very cold in here where I'm exactly at in my office because RAC is very, very high. So that's mm-hmm. one uh, contrast that you get in Florida. You know, the outside is too hot. Inside is too cold. You have to carry a jacket with you all the time when mm-hmm. you come in indoors. <laughs> Hopefully you guys don't get flu with all that <laughs> contrast. In, in yeah, I got immune to it already in the last three years living here. But yeah, for the newcomers, it is something to be aware of. For sure. So please give us a little bit of your background. Sure. So I'm a tech entrepreneur. I'm 25 and I've been in the U.S. for past nine years. I'm originally from Uzbekistan. That's in Central Asia. I grew up, was born there. And at the age of 16, I came to the United States to study in high school. I got a scholarship last minute you know, before I wanted to leave to the U.K. My plan was to study in the U.K. and then my plans kind of changed last minute, two weeks before I was supposed to leave to the UK. And I ended up coming to the US because I got a better scholarship here, mm-hmm. um, which was something very fascinating. There's a whole story of how, in the hindsight, I realized I manifested that because I had a picture of what I thought was London on my wall back in Uzbekistan, right? For a couple of years. Right. That then I realized was actually Brooklyn. Only when I oh, arrived goodness. to the US <laughs> and I saw the Brooklyn Bridge, I'm like, I thought that was London. It was, I was just so ignorant. I right? thought it was the London Bridge <laughs> that you had on your vision board. Yes, exactly. And, and it, it, it didn't even know. And I guess that's how, you know, my plans changed last minute without even intending to go to the U.S. consciously, mm. subconsciously manifest in the U.S. and ended up living in New York, actually. Right. So uh, wow. pretty crazy story. Yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in uh, in the law of attraction. And um, yes. Anyways, so I came to the U.S. nine years ago, and I went to high school for two years. Uh, so my junior and senior years, I studied in the state of Massachusetts, actually, in this small town called Granby. Then I graduated, went to New York Institute of Technology in New York, NYIT, for a year. Mm-hmm. Then I took a gap semester, went back home, did a little bit of a business there, established my business, then came back here, studied in college in California, transferred out in Southern California. To Whittier College, studied there for another semester, and then I ended up dropping out and uh, getting into business that I'm in right now. 
a year prior to that, though, I was in a restaurant business. Uh, my sister and I were managing a, a small restaurant in Manhattan. It was actually the first Uzbek restaurant that we opened historically in Manhattan. Nobody else did that before. Wow. And yeah, that worked until the pandemic started and that got closed down. So anyways, I've been in the sport nutrition business. I've been in the restaurant business. I've been in the e-commerce business. Then I've, I've gotten into this consulting and app development services business that I'm in right now. So in Uzbekistan, do you speak English? You didn't have language barriers at all? Uh, I did have a little bit, I guess, but I already knew English. So I oh, okay. studied English here and there since the age of five. I had, a, I had a tutor that would come and teach us English, right? Because when I was growing up, it was the early days of Uzbekistan because Uzbekistan just appeared on the map, like, was it like six years before I was born, right? I was born mm. in 1998 and then 1991, actually, okay, seven years prior Uzbekistan even just appeared on the map, got broken out from Soviet Union. So right. the trend of learning English started right in the early 90s. So as a kid, my parents really stressed on me learning English. So I, I knew English when I came mm -hmm. since the young age. So it wasn't that big of a problem. Obviously, my English wasn't as good. But yeah, I, I didn't have a language problem. Fresh of it. Fresh of it. That's good. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like every time we hear these stories of I dropped out of college and now I'm a businessman, should we all just drop out of college <laughs> at this point? <laughs> no, actually, it's uh, th there's a difference, right, between correlation and causation, right? So mm -hmm. the, the success in business is not a causation of you dropping out of college. It's rather a correlation, I would say, right? Mm -hmm. So my take on this is even though I did drop out of college, I'm not successful because I dropped out of college, right? It's just because I had started something that was already making money. Right. Um, you know, I, I took a semester off, like I said, after my first year in college to start a business. And that, that business ended up working out. I started making money. And then I just couldn't help myself but run that business while I was in college. But it was getting to the point where me staying in college was taking away the time from the actual business that was making money, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? So I just couldn't physically allocate time to finish college. So I had to drop out. And I would say that's the only reason people should drop out from college. Right. Because you, know, um, you are already building something while there. Yes, and like yes. you said, once it starts to be successful and it's rolling, you can then realize, you know what, there's something here. I need to invest my time. Exactly. In because that's what Mark Zuckerberg did. He started in college. Yes. And he took a semester off. You know, and I think mm -hmm. he took three semesters off. And the reason, the only reason he dropped out is because he he wanted to always come back to Harvard and, and study the same ways as Bill Gates as well, right? They never right. wanted to drop out. But the problem was they just couldn't physically keep extending semesters off. They had a limit on two or three semesters off and that's it. Mm. And then they had to drop out because they just couldn't physically allocate time for college, right? Be there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it was like, you know, I kind of used up my one semester off that I could. For me, it was enough to know that I, I don't need to be in college, right? So mm -hmm. so you've always uh, been an entrepreneur, including running a business with your sister. You've always had this thing of, I always want to create something for myself instead of going around looking for a job. Correct. Yes. For as long as I know myself, I've always identified as an entrepreneur, you know, and I wanted to make money even before, before I knew the word entrepreneur. I mean, my dad has been a businessman himself, an entrepreneur, so I would look up at him, I guess. That's where I got the inspiration. But I started making my first money with a business at the age of 10. Believe wow. it or not. Like, yeah. Yeah. I uh, was selling video games, the middle school I was in, I think, fifth grade. Yeah. I would sell um, actually pretty creatively 
from phone to phone, I would be able to send video games. So back then the internet mm -hmm. wasn't really widely spread, right? So yeah. as kids, we didn't really have mobile internet. We had like only the uh, desktop internet on our computers when we came home, right? So mm -hmm. it was a wired internet, it was limited, it was slow, but yeah. it wasn't like today where you have an app store and you can just, you know, kids, they won't understand it. My nephew won't understand this ever, but you couldn't just download. You the couldn't dialogue. just download. <laughs> yeah, right. You couldn't just download a, a game on your phone. So the only way to do that was to download a game on the computer and then upload it with a cable to your phone, right? So and you then, can sell it to the kid who's buying it from you. Right. But uh -huh. how would I bring a computer to the school, right? So I couldn't do that. So the way we used to buy these games was right next door after school, there was this grocery store that mm -hmm. capitalized on that. They put a computer they downloaded a bunch of games and they would sell the games to kids. Like they would just plug in your phone to their computer and they would sell, you know, at local currency was 500 films back then, right? Which was an equivalent of like buying a hot dog and a Coke, right? So like a whole, right. like a meal price. And then uh, what I did is I undercut them. I figured out how to send a game from phone to phone, right? Through Bluetooth. Bluetooth was just a brand new thing back then that just came out. So I figured out Brilliant. how to send a game uh. yes, from phone to phone. And then... I used to just sit in school during the class and tell the kids, hey, I, I can just sell you this game cheaper than you, you'd buy there, right? And I would send these games yeah. and charge them only 300 films, which was almost half price. And uh, I used to make good money as a kid, you know, like all my pocket money. That is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, both, you certainly have been an entrepreneur for sure. And then you were the youngest member of the Forbes Business Council. How did that come about? Yeah, so how old was I back then? 2020, that was 22. Uh, I joined in to a Forbes Business Council invitation-only panel, basically, of like the experts in the Forbes Business Council list. So this one is not based off of like the net worth or anything, like not like a, a millionaire, right, on the Forbes list. But you this list there, is... Though, for sure. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, this is uh, more of a kind of a merit-based, list right of experts that uh, contribute to Forbes articles and are also recognized on the Forbes council list where we have networking events we have uh, mini social media inside for the members mm -hmm. as well right and um, to get there you have your company has to have a certain amount of revenue and a certain amount of achievements right they have a whole criteria mm -hmm. and if you hit that they will selectively reach out to you and invite you to join so I, I was one of the people that they reached out to and I got invited to join. Yeah, that's how I got into it at the age of 22. And I realized nobody else was this young when they joined. So yeah, I just happened to be an executive at the company that qualified for this. Right. The company being Jafton. Yeah. Yes. Tell yeah. us a little more about it and explain what a chief revenue officer is exactly. Yeah, sure. So it's just a fancy word for head of sales, right? Uh, in a way. Although okay. now that I look at it, I realize Revenue involves a little more than just sales. It's you know more of a strategic role as well. But at the end of the day, what the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer, is responsible for is the namestead is the revenue, right? Mm -hmm. So every business has to rely on revenue to survive, to grow, and everything. So my role as CRO is to grow the sales, which is what my strength is, right? Mm -hmm. So this comes back to my story of how I even joined Jafton. So I got into this company in a creative way. Not by starting it from scratch, but rather, so my business partner today has been my mentor first, right? When I just met him, 
He's right. been mentoring me in tech. And that was back in 2017 when I just met him. I was still in college. And then I joined in initially as an employee in the business development and sales department. And then the time the company in 2019 was much smaller than it is today. It was like 10, 15 people. The revenue was lower, right? So I joined in to help grow the sales. And basically, I built up my ownership in this company through sweat equity, right? Instead of basically starting it from scratch or, you know, buying an equity. Basically, yeah, that's how it happened today, me being the co-owner, but the CEO is still the original founder of the business, right? But it's, uh, we're business partners, basically, we make the decisions together. And it's just that my core strength is in the revenue side and and growing the sales, which is what I've been responsible for, for the past four and a half years. And uh, that's how we were able to, you know, through new contracts, we were able to grow the company from 15 people to 120 now. And Mm -hmm. revenue wise, we've uh, grown, I think, like six or seven X. Which means you know exactly what you're doing. When it comes to growing revenue or sales for the company, how do you develop a strategy to say, this is what I'm going to make the market realize. This is the value we add. And so they should buy whatever it is we're selling. So basically, how do you convince the customers, right? I mean, first of all, you have to find customers who already need it, right? My approach is actually, I have a very lazy approach, I would say. I try to always get something that's more on the surface and more of a lower hanging fruit and try to reach something that's up there. So what I'm trying to say with that is in sales, there's two ways you can secure the contract, right? In sales, it's either outbound or it's inbound. So outbound is when you go and you knock the door and say, hey, do you need my service? You know, and you go door by door, basically. You know, I used to do the door-to-door sales at 14. That's how pretty much you create demand, right? You go yeah. knock the door and they may not want your service. And it's your job as a salesperson to convince them that they will need your service, right? Or a product. That's a harder type of sales, right? I mean, it's definitely a proven strategy. It works uh, when you use the right words and you're confident. And, and you, you do it enough, enough times. Enough times, exactly. It's a numbers game, exactly. Even if yes. you suck at it, mm-hmm. if you if you knock a thousand doors, you're going to sell something, right? But my approach has been more of a lazier approach where I didn't do that. But instead, what I did is like, I said, there's already people who are looking for these services, right? Why don't I just try to find them and just position myself in the places where they're already searching? Because not only do providers search for customers, but customers search for providers as well, right? Right. So, and that's where the inbound comes in, right? You focus on the inbound. All you have to do is just position yourself in the right place for you to be seen by customers who are already looking for these products and services, right? So -hmm. if you were, let's take an example of a brick and mortar offline business. Back in the days when we used to run a restaurant, for us to have a lot of customers, we had to secure a good location, right? So we paid extra in rent to get a prime location in Manhattan on a good street, right? And that's how we position ourselves. Yes. Exactly, right? A restaurant mm-hmm. doesn't go out and tell people, hey, do you want to visit my restaurant? Do you want to visit my restaurant, right? You just have to find a good location, right? Mm. So same way with the services in online businesses as well, that you can just be good at positioning. What I mean by positioning is SEO, right? Search engine yeah. optimization. Uh, it's the ads, it's directories and rankings. So you just have to reverse engineer the process of finding those places where the customers are already actively looking for these services because whatever you're selling the odds are somebody's already looking for that service and it's your job just to position yourself there and put yourself on top there be in the right online location for them exactly. to find you yep yep, mm-hmm. yep. so that's-, that's what i focused on and uh to this day has been our main strategy now mm-hmm. we are 
starting to do outbound as well. I, I recently uh, started making content about like how actually I've been ignorant toward outbound and that's actually not been good for us because we missed out on some of the perhaps like bigger contracts that we could have secured if we did go door to door because the good side of the door to door and the outbound is that you get to choose who you knock the doors off, right? Right. Say you only want to work with a certain type of client. That's when you have to do outbound because then you can filter the categories of companies that you want to work with and only reach out to those companies and, and people that you want to work with. That makes sense, right? Let's say you're you're selling a consulting service. You only want to work with women age over 50 that are making at least $100,000 a year, right? So well, you're very specific in the avatar of your ideal Yes, customer. exactly. You have the ICP, right? ideal customer profile. And you just make that list and you start knocking only the doors of those women who are over 50 who have $100,000 or above income. Now, that is only possible if you do outbound because with inbound, you can't really just open your doors for those type of customers. It'd be really hard to do that, if that makes sense. Mm. So there's positives and negatives for each, like pros and cons. It's good to do both, though, in sales. Right. Yeah. It certainly is. You were speaking at the Synergy Global, one of the biggest stages for public speaking. Yeah, and that's shared right. the stage with some big names, which you will mention for us. How did you first get accepted into that stage to be one of the speakers? Yeah, uh, again, you know, same way I was able to position, you know, our company, Jafton, for success, where I was there when people were looking for these services or companies were looking for services, right? When they Google or they find. Same way I just started positioning my personal brand in a way mm -hmm. that I'm more seen and more, more likely to be approached. So in short, it was just for me, it was working on my personal brand and, and social media. I was very, very active in LinkedIn and uh, Instagram marketing in 2020 and during the pandemic. And um, I started making content, you know, I would do like smaller kind of speeches. I would do smaller interviews on different podcasts or different like radio shows and things like that, whatever is possible, right? There's somebody who will interview you at any point. Uh, it might be a smaller show, but what happens is if you keep doing that and you keep posting that content, you show that you're an expert, you are more likely to be seen by the synergies of the world, basically, right? Mm, so mm. for me, like I kept going on different podcasts, a smaller podcast, right? The first podcast I went on was actually by my friend who started a podcast in the pandemic. It was a very small podcast. Nobody was listening yet. Didn't even continue. We've all that been podcast. there, trust me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But see what I did is like, I was talking to him. I said, hey, you know what? I want to do public speaking want to go on different like stages, the big stages and everything, right? He mm. said, you know what, do you want me to interview you? I said, yeah, of course. And so we did that interview, maybe five people watched that, but I took the clips and started posting on my social media, you know, and people who are watching, they don't know how big the podcast is. They just see that, oh, he's been on a podcast, he must be an expert. So kept posting that, then going on different podcasts and things like that. And then I just got reached out by Synergy. It was the first time also that they were hosting an online conference. Event due to the event, pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, due to the pandemic, exactly, because they used to mm -hmm. only do in person. Like their previous event was in Madison Square Garden, right? It's It was yeah. huge. This time they invited very big speakers as well, the Mike Tyson, Chuck Norris was there, you know, all these big speakers, but they did it online. Everybody was speaking from home. Yes. So they were looking for more experts, for sort of some newer experts as well, right? Kara was, I was lucky to, you know, be seen by people who are like looking for speakers in their team. And they reached out to me and I accepted. And uh, that's how I got into their online stage, basically, with, with those people. Wow. What would you say, because you've just mentioned it as well, regarding your personal brand, 
how does public speaking, which we talk about a lot in the show, how important is it as an entrepreneur for your brand? Actually, not only for entrepreneurs, but for anybody, working on your personal brand is extremely important because it creates trust, right? Personal mm-hmm. brand is just a fancy word for reputation. You know, when you're in business, especially, what do you work on? You work on your reputation of the brand. But as humans, no matter how cool your brand is, at the end of the day, people still work with people, right? Mm. You need to establish yourself as a trusted person and as an expert in the industry, right? So whatever you're doing, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a photographer or you're any service provider, you need to work on the personal brand, even if it's not huge, like with millions of followers. Just the fact that you'll have some content on your page when people Google your name and it pops up and there's videos of you, there's interviews with you, there's, you know, you're a subject matter expert. That just creates trust in customers, especially today where almost every service is sold online now. You know, like with most of our customers, like we have 32 projects right now, the same time that we go, we do at Jafton. Uh And guess what? I've maybe met like three or four of my customers in person only. All of my rest everything of my is online. Everything is online, right? They go on Zoom, and we don't do small projects. Our projects, all of them are almost like six-figure projects. Mm-hmm. And people wire you that kind of money without even meeting you in person, and it, it's become the norm. But they do that if only if you're somehow public. You have to show your face. You know, you have to be there. And the more you do that, the more of a subject matter expert you're perceived as. Then the shorter the time that the people start trusting you. Because as far as they're concerned, you're just a stranger to them, right? Why would they give you all this money if they don't know you? So it's a reputation and credibility that you built with a personal brand. And then also it works for both ends. Not only does it work for sales to bring new customers, but bringing customers is one thing. Then what you need is to have employees, to have a team who's going to do the work, right? And for me, it's also been very, very helpful actually to attract the new talent to my team. A lot of my top employees, I was able to hire because of the personal brand as well. Mm. They, they were just... Because I was know, about to ask, how do you know this is the best person to be at Jefton and I must bring them in? I mean, obviously, there's like different roles that they get qualified differently. Mm-hmm. I usually don't do the test on the hard skills. You know, there's always like the senior people that do the you know test. For example, if, if we're hiring a developer. Yes. If it's a mobile developer, iOS developer, for example, a senior iOS developer will test them on their hard skills. They're not going to talk right. to them. They're just going to give them a test. Like a prototype a of what the daily job is going to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that person takes and then the senior person checks and says, okay, this person is good or this person not good. Right. right. Once that's done, then the HR does the test and everything, the psychological test and everything else. So most of the people at this point, my business partner and I, we don't interview them anymore. Mm-hmm. They just go directly through the whoever's the senior at that position, right? There's a head of department, like if we're hiring a QA engineer, the head of QA department is who decides whether we should hire this person or not. Right. We don't even get involved. Who we get involved with, the owners in hiring is only the C-level executives, basically. Yes. For me, like I get involved when we're hiring salespeople. I, I do that personally. So yeah, how do I decide if this is the right person? Most of the time I hire salespeople. So for me, I mean, besides what's on the resume, hard skills wise, I look more on the personal level for their soft skills. Soft and skills, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. of course, especially for a salesperson, you know, it's uh, soft skills that's very important. And uh, the top soft skills is for me, it's persuasion, right? The ability to really persuade because that sales, right? Needs that. 
mm-hmm. uh, to have a presence and influence with some kind of leadership skills within it. And then just the ability to really connect with people, right? To, to establish that connection and rapport and relationship. So when I go on an interview with a candidate and I see that they're not even able to chit chat with me and establish that personal connection, like, you know, for the first, like what, 10 minutes of this call, we were, you and I were talking, right? So, and we're not talking uh, about the podcast and the stuff. Exactly. Right. We're just talking about some, just chatting. some random things about chatting. Exactly. Yeah. And if I see that the salesperson candidate is not able to do that, well, it's definitely a no, right? Because this is an essential skill. They're going to be dealing some... with people. Exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. the people skills, basically, in short, is what we look for. Mm-hmm. The people skills. And because we talk about them a lot on this podcast, and I know we sound like a broken record, but you can be so good in your technical, but if you're especially going to be in a leadership position and deal with people, the soft skills, they really, really need to 100%. be there. You said that there's a difference between being an entrepreneur, working in your business or an employee of your business. What do you mean by that? So yeah, the terms of working in the business and working on the business, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of business owners, especially small business owners, what they become at the end of the day is they just get themselves another job, right? It's just that they're their own boss. Yes, but it's a job because they have to come and do the daily tasks themselves. I'm still guilty of that too. You know, even though I was able to delegate a lot of the tasks, you know, I still oversee the sales team. I still oversee some of the decisions, you know, that can't go by without me, right? So maybe a day or two could go by without me at Jampton, but I couldn't go on a vacation for a week and just not even touch my phone. I'm not that level yet. So I'm guilty of that myself. But a lot of the business owners, they, you know, especially if the team is small, they'll have multiple roles within business. And the thing is, it's okay to have that in the beginning, but as you grow, you have to delegate, right? So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is mostly you have to delegate and be able to once you delegate, you know, then you're you're able to see the bird's eye view of the business and what's going on. Okay, I have these person is performing, you know, like this. This person is not performing like this, right? And then you you start thinking more of a strategy as a business owner. That's I think where every business owner has to strive to be. I would say I'm like seventy percent there right now. Like okay. I, I'm able to like more high level, you know, see everything bird's eye view. But I still thirty percent. I stay as an employee within my own business where I'm not able to just kind of relax and not work in the business and be 100% sure that everything goes by, which is why I'm in search of a chief revenue officer to replace myself. To replace your current position. Yes, exactly. Mm. And uh, that will allow me to be 100% in the owner's position as opposed to the employee position, right? Mm. Um, And I think that's where I was recently... uh, reading this Instagram post by Cody Sanchez, who's uh, known for buying businesses and selling businesses. Yeah. And uh, she said, as a founder, it's your job to fire yourself from as many positions as possible. Firing mm. yourself, right? Because then you actually become a business owner. And that's how she's able to build a $100 million business empire. She owns like 20, 30 different businesses. Which means replace yourself. So back to the skills we spoke about earlier, you will find people who you know, if you put them in the position to replace you, they will be able to based on how you evaluated them when you brought them into the company. Exactly. Yes, yes, of mm. course. You know, once you step into the owner's position, then it becomes the game of chess, right? You just pick your your players. You see if this player is not doing well, you just replace them, right? And you play mm-hmm. strategy like that. Yeah. Right. So the work you do at Jafton, the app development, I've seen some of your clients are like Alaska Airlines, you know, big names. When your clients come to you and say, please develop an app for us, 
Do they have an idea of what it's supposed to do or look like? Or does your company say, oh, based on your business, I think this is how it's supposed to look and this is what it's supposed to do? Yeah. So by the time they, they come to us, especially because, uh, like I said, we only do inbound, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time they come knocking on our door, which is what 100% of our clients right now come, right? We don't knock on anybody's door. They already know what they want. They already know what kind of app they need. Some of them know it better than others. Some of them just come with an idea and it's a very raw idea. And when you start asking them questions, they go like, oh, I didn't think about this. I didn't think about that. Like uh, I was telling you about the clients that we had that wanted to build something like a food stamp, but they didn't think about how it's going to work, right? About partnerships. They had the idea, but they didn't have the internal processes in place thought about, which is okay because we actually offer a service for that as well called the discovery phase or slash technical deep dive where we mm-hmm. map out the logic of the project for them, right? All they have to bring is just an idea. Okay. But with more of a corporate clients or government clients, we also work with the government agencies. They come with strict requirements and they're like, all right, here's like the 20 pages of requirements that we have. And we just want you to follow this and then build it for us. That's it. And uh, those clients are, are actually very good clients as well because they know exactly what they want. I'd say they're all in different stages, but at the very least, they know the idea that they want to build. Mm-hmm. And now let's go back to your team at Jafton. Yep. You have software engineers and developers doing different things. How do they communicate amongst each other? Because we always say when you do tech work, you're not doing it in a vacuum. It's going to feed into something else. Yes, yes. So how Especially... do they make sure they communicate? With you? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great question. Because uh, especially when we work on projects of the size that we work on, right? Uh, we we build apps that are used by millions of people, right? So those apps mm-hmm. have to be very, very thought through well. And one or two people cannot get it done. Usually on a given app, we have at least five people working on it, right? It's like a factory. To make one car, there's multiple types of labor that have to come together, right? Multiple side you have to build that. The engine together, you have to bring the painting together and that, that everything has to be coherent and like, you know, they have to consider each other's work. So communication is super important. Now, how mm-hmm. we do that is multiple tools. That's the first challenge. And second challenge is that actually our team is remote. So we have a physical office, but we're, we don't force our employees to come into office. So a lot of them prefer to work remotely. And some of them are actually in different time zones. Like we have people in Israel and we have people in United States and we have people in Uzbekistan. And they're all in different time zones. And they have to communicate. So we have multiple apps that we use for that, including Slack, which is mm-hmm. for communication. It's like WhatsApp, but for work. We use Jira for project management, which, you know, you just assign tasks, you know, and then you can track them. And speaking of tracking, we use Time Doctor, which is this time tracking software that we use to see if the person is uh, working on what they should be working. Okay. Right. So it's a little intrusive. That's probably the most intrusive software that we have. But what it does is, you install it on your computer, right? If you're getting a job at Jaffin, it's a requirement. You have to install Time Doctor. And Time Doctor keeps track of not just your time that you're working, but what you're working on, okay? So mm. if they go on social media, it will say, hey, you know, you're not working right now. Are you working? Like, and then it screenshots You browse their... it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it screenshots their computer and it puts that in their report for their manager to see. So mm. it's very strict. <laughs> but uh, as far as just overall communication, it's combination of Slack, Zoom, we do Zoom yes. calls, and then uh, project management systems like Jira. 
Yes, because, I mean, we've read cases over the years where the tech team was not communicating and they ended up purchasing the wrong thing and it cost the company millions or whatever it is. Communication, I know we just drilled this a lot to people, but it, it really is important. Yeah, and it's still work in progress. I mean, we always improve our system. It's not perfect. You know, we have some mm. issues, you know, especially the, the biggest lack of communication was in between teams. There's usually a good communication inside one team, but we have multiple teams, right? Especially right. when the teams are split into front end and back end, uh, meaning the sales and the development team, right? Mm. So what happens is when a client comes, the salesperson communicates with them. They gather the requirements, they document everything. And then if the contract is signed, then it's passed on to development. And yeah. that's where we used to have a little bit of issue because like something that the client discussed with the salesperson wasn't documented. And then one or it's two months after It's not translated exactly the way yeah. the client said to the tech team. So now they might not. Th then the client goes, but I told this to the salesperson. And then the developer Ooh. says, I, don't, I didn't know about that. And then there's a problem, right? And it's probably one of the most common problems in agencies is mm -hmm. that the sales sales team may not communicate well. So we've worked on improving that as well. We do a lot of documentation. All of our calls are recorded. Everything gets transcribed. We're using AI for that now. Like uh, as a matter of fact, on this call, even there's Fathom AI, right. which is a, an excellent tool. It records all of your Zoom meetings and it creates summaries and it notes from what was discussed hmm. and highlights the action items. Like if I promised you that I'm going to send you something Tatum yeah. is going to create a task for me that I need to send you that thing. So that you don't forget or, yep. yeah. Because yep. back in the day in the 90s, when I started my corporate job, we used to have a, a column on the agenda say, task, Roberta will do this. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Now it's all <laughs> automated with AI. So yeah, it's still not perfect. But again, it's so much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Any last words for a tech company that struggles with communication skills or communication between team members? Create systems. You know, I'm a huge fan of systems. Matter of fact, like uh, right here, I have a uh, portrait of systems, right? And there's right. a picture of a girl. Let me see if I can unblur this, actually, that uh, is falling onto the systems. And what that means is there's a quote from uh, one of my favorite books, Atomic Habits, mm, which yes. says, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems, right? So systems right mm. here, you, mm. you fall to the level of your systems always. So if you create bulletproof systems, there's no way that the communication can fail. You can have the worst communicator in the world, but if the system forces them to do it, there's no way they can forget it, right? Like part of my system is Fathom. Like even if I forget to document and take notes, I have a system right here that's going to do that for me, right? So my biggest you know, one piece of advice would be just work on improving your systems so that no matter who you hire, they're going to fall into the right systems. Words of wisdom from Sadro Akhmedov, the entrepreneur all the way from Florida, managing partner and chief revenue officer of Jaftin. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your inspiring journey and entrepreneurial spirit. Likewise, Roberta, really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, hope to come back again oh, onto sure. the show. Oh, you must. I've had people who've been here three times. Oh, please. You, awesome. you're, welcome to, you're welcome to come back here. Now we're friends of the show for sure. And before awesome. you go, I know you're not just looking for a chief revenue officer, but if anybody is looking to develop their app, where can we find you on the web? Sure, you can go on our website, uh, jafton.com and send a request there or call us at 212-499-0000. And uh, one of our team members will help you out. Or you can find me personally, 
If you want to follow me on social media, it's my first and last name, Sardor Ahmedov. I'm most active on LinkedIn. So yeah, I'd be happy to help out with any questions or advice. For sure. I'll put all those on the show notes. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for joining the Speaking and Communicating Podcast once again. The Speaking and Communicating Podcast is part of the B Podcast Network, where there are many other podcasts that support you in being a better leader and becoming the change you want to see. To learn more about the B Podcast Network, go to bpodcastnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify, and stay tuned for more episodes to come.